Talking History. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. As one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Aukteroin, Argus, Akoiza. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, as part of Heritage Week, we're exploring the history of Kylemore Abbey and we'll be finding out why and how it was built and how it has evolved over the centuries. You can email us your thoughts and views, talkinghistory at newstalk.com, and we'd love to hear from you. Last week, we found out about Renaissance cosmetics, plots against the life of Queen Elizabeth I, and Irish women artists. And if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows, just go to the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud, our website, newstalk.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. This week is National Heritage Week, a celebration of Ireland's cultural, built and natural heritage. Running until the 20th of August, this year's theme invites us to explore the traditions and practices, knowledge and skills passed on through the generations. To find out more, just go to the website heritageweek.ie. And in tonight's show, we're going to look at the history of Kylemore Abbey in County Galway, because this September marks the centenary of the opening of Kylemore Abbey Girls' School, run by the Benedictine nuns until 2010 and during this week there are going to be some wonderful talks and events taking place at Kylemore Abbey to celebrate the rich history of one of the most beautiful locations in Ireland and so to help me explore the history of Kylemore Abbey I'm delighted to welcome our panel of experts. Ethno Halloran is Kylemore Abbey's experience manager and Burke is history guide at Kylemore Abbey and will be giving a talk on Mitchell Henry for Heritage Week and Gareth Nuckton is experienced supervisor at Kylemore Abbey and will be giving a talk on the Kylemore Abbey Girls School. Well, you're all very welcome, but Ethna, I might begin with you and I might begin with a question about Kylemore Abbey today because I was down at it last September for a wonderful conference organised by the University of Notre Dame on, on Lower Castlereagh. It has the beautiful, uh, it has the, the, you know, the spectacular scenery, but it also has that wonderful global centre uh, and there is so much in, in Colmore Abbey in terms of the tours, the museum, the experience. So if a visitor was to go to Galway and visit Colmore Abbey, what would they experience? Well, Colmore has many facets to it and there's kind of really something for every visitor. For us, uh, the three of us that you have here with you today, we're all really history nerds. So we're really deep into the history and we love sharing that with people. Um, so really, we have a huge 1,000 acre estate. Um, the jewel of that really is we feel the Abbey building as well. And then we have the Neo-Gothic Church where we have music performances throughout the year. Um, we are connected, as you said, with Notre Dame University. And that's kind of to continue the tradition of education that's always been a part of Kylemore's history and part of the Benedictine community here at Kylemore. Um, we have a beautiful Victorian wall garden, which many people come just to visit the garden because it's one of the most spectacular heritage gardens in the country. We have a herd of Connemara ponies, and this is pony season in Connemara. It's a big thing here in Kylemore at the moment. And then a lot of the things that we're reflecting on over Heritage Week as well, such as hospitality and history, those are kind of really still big features of Kylemore, our food, our chocolate making, all those kind of things. And um, you asked me about um, Notre Dame, that um, partnership sees students uh, mostly from America coming to spend uh, time here doing all kinds of cultural studies. Um, it could be uh, working in the landscape, working with art, creative writing, and it kind of keeps um, the place really vibrant because there's activity and education happening here all the time. And it's about an hour's drive from Galway City. Yeah, just over an hour's drive from Galway City. And, you know, it's a place with a bit of something for everyone. If you love history, if you just love being out in nature, love gardens, there's a little bit of everything here at Kylemore for you. And as I mentioned, the scenery is quite spectacular. You know, it was hard to concentrate on the history conference yeah. because the views <laughs> really are, are so spectacular. And it is... I think it's kind of almost like maybe a hidden away gem precisely because it's not right in a city centre that it is in the beautiful countryside that it's somewhere that you have to to travel to go and see but once you're there you're just blown away by by what's around you. 
I think the thing about Kylemore as well, just kind of speaking from a personal point of view, and I'm sure Anne and Garrett would agree with me as well, is the kind of beauty is kind of always, it, it, it's constantly changing as well. So like we have people who've been coming to Kylemore all their lives from when they were children. Remember coming to visit the place when it was, you know, really quiet and there was no tourists here. And um, but the beauty is kind of it, it's really it is overwhelming. And at the moment, it's almost like, you know, we've had such a wet summer. Everybody's had this wet summer. And uh, but the place is so lush. And we find we really have a kind of a climate tourism going on at the moment because people come here and they're really relieved. Their kind of soul is refreshed by the lush kind of landscape and by everything is cool and comfortable and I think people find a lot of relief here because people are living in such extreme circumstances extreme climates and beauty is is really good for you I think it's really good to be around beauty it's good to walk in the woods and to feel the rain on your face so I think that's good for people and Garish, it's also interesting that there are so many different stories that can be told through Calmore Abbey and we'll be exploring some of them today. There's the story of the girls' school and we can talk about that later. There's the story of, of the founding of it and, and its role in the, in the, in the 19th century and, uh, for example, Mitchell Henry the, and, and, and it's a story of entrepreneurship and, 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 and expansion and doing so much for the community in Connemara as well. And it's a story about the nuns there is there's an educational story. There's there's different dimensions to the story of Calmore. Absolutely, Patrick. It's almost endless. You think of uh, the 150 years of heritage of the building itself and who has passed through the building. The displays we have in the Abbey building themselves are spectacular. Uh, we really have developed this in the last three years, four years, thanks to Ethan and other people. And what I find, Patrick, is that every day when I'm working, and usually it's five days a week, I get to talk to people who have never seen Calmore Abbey before, but also may have some other perspectives about the area and have some knowledge which passes on to me. And then I can, uh, in my history talks and other conversations, I can talk about what they have uh, experienced and what their perspectives are. So it's an endless cycle of talking to people, informing them, and getting more feedback from them. So, But the building itself is just unreal in terms of how much History is there physically for people to look at the videos, the objects in the display cases, everything on the walls. And it is fascinating to a lot of people who have never seen it before. And uh, yes, the stories are also there. Going back to the time of the Henrys, the Duke and Duchess, of course, being very colorful characters themselves, but only being there for 10 years. And then since 1920, the nuns being here and uh, doing a daily life of prayer and work. Their stories, of course, very important and uh, it certainly is enhancing the whole area, has been for generations. So, Anne, can you take us back to the beginning then of Kylemore Abbey? When was it built and who was responsible for, for creating Kylemore Abbey? Yes, well, it was built between 1867 and 71. Uh, it was built by a man called Mitchell Henry. He had originally been a surgeon in England, but his father died in 1862, and he inherited a vast fortune, and he decided to take on the the family business, which was uh, manufacturing textiles in in Manchester. So he decided to buy, in all, 15,000 acres um, in the area around Calmore. And he did that because he had come to Calmore on honeymoon, in 1849, and his lovely wife, Margaret Vaughan, she fell in love with the place. So Mitchell Henry promised to build her a castle. And they built the castle in the neo-Gothic style on the edge of uh, Lake Polacapel. And Mitchell Henry also developed the walled gardens, eight and a half acres of walled garden. And he had 21 heated greenhouses there, so he was growing things like bananas, melons, grapes, citrus fruit, things never seen before in the heart of Connemara. So he developed this fantastic edifice, and he set about improving the lives of the people in the area. I've made him sound like someone who's quite extravagant and um, frivolous, but really, he was a very serious man. and he considered himself 100% Irish because his parents 
came from County Down, and his wife also came from County Down. So he said his mission when he came to Connemara was to help a neglected people because he considered the people of Ireland neglected in the heart of the British Empire. And so he said about proving to the world what you could do in Ireland if you treated the place and the people correctly. He began by developing what he called a model farm. Uh, for example, he introduced new agricultural methods. Uh, he drained a lot of the bogs, added lime to the soil, so you could grow other things, things other than potatoes. And he had all the services there. Uh, he had a forge. He had a dairy, a slaughterhouse. He also brought the most modern innovations to Connemara. For example, he set up a post office with telegraphic communications. And he had a lot of all the modern conveniences inside the castle. For example, he had electric light from 1893 because he set up a hydroelectric plant. So he was really a man ahead of his time. And I always say he was like the Richard Branson or Elon Musk of Connemara. Oh, God, hopefully not Elon Musk. <laughs> no, no, sorry, maybe I shouldn't have sent him. <laughs> yeah, that, was, that, was, that was probably a, 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 until more recent times when uh, it all took a, a darker turn. Yes. Uh, he, was a, he was an important benefactor for Connemara, wasn't he? And he saw that as part of his mission in the area. Yes, he drained... A lot of the bogs, as I was saying, and he rendered the land more fertile. He did this in a way he, he people had started doing that before him, of course, but he developed thousands of acres of land around Connemara, so um, uh, people could uh, grow cereals, etc. And he he did this at his own expense, really, uh, because the Royal Agricultural Society was saying that what he was doing uh, was not really economically viable for a landlord, but he said he was doing it for society. Um, And he also improved the living conditions of his tenants. For example, he opened up the window spaces in in their cottages because in those days you had to have very, you had very small openings for windows because of the window tax. So he went in, opened up the windows, and he um, put glass in all at his own expense. When times were bad, he lowered the rents of his tenants. He opened a school for the children, which was non-denominational, no religion, because he hated the fact that in Ireland at that time there was a serious turf war going on between the Catholic Church and the Church of Ireland, which is a Protestant church. He himself was Protestant, but he was of the Unitarian faith, and they are very liberal. They, at the time, they were abolitionists, for example. So he was also fighting for the rights of Irish tenants in Westminster. He represented Galway for 14 years in Westminster, um, and he fought for lower rents for tenants and security of tenure, so they couldn't be evicted at the drop of a hat, which was happening all over the place. And he was also a home ruler. Although he fell out with Parnell, or he didn't like Parnell, and uh, uh, ended up voting against the Home Rule Bill in 1886, I think he didn't like the radicalism of Parnell after the new departure. Absolutely. (laughs) So Parnell and Michael Davitt, they were fighting for the same things as uh, Mitchell Henry, but they espoused the idea of civil disobedience to achieve change, and Mitchell Henry hated that um, because he thought you could achieve change through peaceful means, through politics, through negotiation, etc. And it didn't happen like that. <laughs> um, and he he was no match against Parnell. Um, his rising moon was nothing against the the rising star of. Oh, <laughs> and your your talk is on Wednesday at 11am in the Calmer Abbey Fordham Great Hall and you've given it the intriguing title Mitchell Henry, A Success or a Failure and I'm wondering to what extent do you think he was a success? Do, why do you think he might have been a failure in terms of because I suppose he did have notable achievements with Calmer, with the area. Yes, well I would say that in his lifetime, well, towards the end of his life, he was 
considered a bit of a failure because he'd failed in a lot of his ambitions, particularly his political ambitions. And also he was virtually bankrupt. Uh, so he'd really overextended himself with Carl Moore and his properties in England. He'd made some bad business decisions. Uh, for example, he'd invested in gold mines in South Africa and in Australia. And for different reasons, they went belly up, so he lost his money. So he had to sell his uh, house in London, 1900. And then he put Carl Moore on the market in 1902. So politically, he had failed. Financially, I suppose, he had failed. Um, and he'd had some tragedies in his personal life. His wife died in 1874 in Egypt when they were on holiday. And he lost his daughter, his favorite child, when you could say you had a favorite child, uh, Geraldine, in 1892. She was killed in a carriage accident um, near the Calmore estate. So um, towards the end of his life, you could say he had failed, but I would say that post-mortem, he succeeded because his legacy lived on and it still lives on today, thanks to the nuns in Calmore. They're, they're preserving the heritage of Calmore. They've reinstated the gardens that he developed and the Gothic church that he built in memory of his wife. So I think also he's still respected in the area. He was well-loved by his tenants and other people in the area. So I think that preserving the heritage makes his memory live on. And Kathleen Villiers Tuttle, she wrote the book Carmel Castle and Abbey. She said, if I can quote this, she said, his wealth, generosity and sensitivity and judicious decision-making which helped to make him so popular in life, have made him a legend in death. So I think you could say that post-mortem, he's a resounding success. Brilliant. And you mentioned uh, the financial trouble and going bankrupt, and he had to sell the property in 1903. And I suppose we should say that at this point, it's known as, of course, Calmore Castle, because the Abbey name would have been given later when the nuns arrived. But when 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 he sold it then, the Duke and Duchess of Manchester came in. And t- talk to me about them. What were they like? Well, I would say that the Duke of Manchester was the polar opposite of Mitchell Henry. <laughs> He was the ninth Duke of Manchester. He had the grand title of the ninth Duke, and his name was William Angus Drogo Montague. But this grand title belies the truth because there was little substance behind it. He inherited his wealth and his title when he was only 15. Unfortunately, he had, he was, well, had a gambling habit, and he was a bit of a playboy. So by the age of 23, he was virtually bankrupt. So what did he do? He went in search of a rich woman. And where did he go? He went to America. Like a lot of impoverished gentry from the UK, uh, they did that. They went to America to seek out these rich heiresses. These women were called dollar princesses. It's well documented. There's books written about them. And so the women came with the, the money. And the men came with the title. The dollar princess that the Duke found, the ninth Duke found, was Helena Zimmerman. And she was the daughter of Eugene Zimmerman. He made his money in the railroad and in oil in Cincinnati. And he didn't want his daughter, his only child, to marry the Duke. But unfortunately for him, Helena was of age. She was in love with this bad boy. And... She was self-willed, so she eloped with him to London in 1900 and they married. So Eugene, her father, was a bit annoyed, but he thought, all is not lost, I'll redeem the Duke. So he brought the Duke to his company in Cincinnati, he gave him an office. He said, now you're going to work as a clerk, you're going to work your way up, and you'll learn the business like that. That lasted about five minutes. And uh, he was traveling around North America, getting into all sorts of trouble, came back to Europe, the same thing. So by 1910, they were broke. So Eugene, Helena's father, said, OK, I'll take over the mortgage. 
for now, but I won't do anything more for you. So they limped on in Calmore for another three years to um, 1913, and they decided they had to put it on the market. So then we had the First World War, and then we had our War of Independence, 1919-21. So no one was interested in buying an estate, but then luckily the Benedictine sisters came in 1920 and they bought the estate. And we'll be able to talk to Garrett about that um, after the break and about how uh, we have the girls' school established there as well. And of course, this year marks the centenary of that. Well, we are tonight talking history and we are talking about the history of Kylemore Abbey. We'll take that break now and when we come back, we'll find out about the history of the school and the arrival of the nuns. Welcome back. We're talking history and as part of Heritage Week this week, we're looking at the history of Kylemore Abbey. And there's some wonderful talks taking place all around the country. Just go to their website, heritageweek.com. And if you want to find out what's going on at Kylemore Abbey, you can just type in Kylemore Abbey into the search engine there. But some wonderful talks. And uh, tonight we are talking about that history. I'm delighted to be rejoined by Ethno Halloran, Kylemore Abbey's experience manager and Burke history guide at Kylemore Abbey and Gareth Nuckton, who's experienced supervisor at Kylemore Abbey. And Gareth, you're going to be speaking about the Kylemore Abbey Girls' School. And of course, this September does mark the centenary of it being founded. Can you tell me about the arrival of the nuns? Um, why they ended up at Kylemore and uh, the creation of the school. Absolutely, Patrick. Well, the nuns have been at Kylemore for, yes, 103 years. But before that, this branch of the order was in Belgium for many centuries, from 1665, as educators as well. But they had that life of contemplative work and prayer, and they were doing it for centuries over in Belgium because they couldn't do it here because of the Reformation laws against the practice of Roman Catholicism in public. So if you had an Irish daughter who wished to be educated by the Benedictine nuns, or perhaps be a, a become a Benedictine herself, in Europe you had to send them over there to Belgium, to the town of Ypres, or the city of Ypres in the western part of Belgium in Flanders, and it's spelled Y-P-R-E-S. The nuns were there as themselves known as the Irish Dames of Ypres. They had so many members of the house of Irish descent, or Irish in fact. They were educators because according to the rule of St. Benedict from the 6th century. They were there for a long time um, educating the poor. All Benedictines have that ability to educate. And so it was a natural when the nuns eventually came here in 1920 to start a school for girls just three years after their arrival. They had schools there in Belgium. They were forced out of Belgium because of the destruction, as we know, in the First World War, the Battle of Ypres, the Second Battle of Ypres saw the entire town demolished by artillery shells. The nuns eventually set up at Alton Priory for a brief time uh, in England uh, in safety. And then in 1916, they moved to County Wexford to Mac Mines. And they were there. They even had a school there. Eventually, of course, they arrived here in Kylemore uh, as a place of profound reflection, beauty, tranquility. And they started the school for girls. And they began it in 1923. They had enormous challenges in getting the building transformed from a lavish country house, a large building, into an actual monastery, but also a school. So a lot of the old uh, bedrooms became offices and classrooms, and they had an enormous estate uh, to establish. So it took time. The one person who was designated as the first head mistress was a lady named Scholastica Murphy. And she lived a long time. She died in 1980. She was born in 1888. She only became professed as a nun in 1920. So three years into her career as a Benedictine, she's in charge of this school with dozens of students. And again, the first uh, times of the school, it was a boarding school almost exclusively. However, if you had a daughter who was uh, related uh, to one of the workers on the estate, they were allowed into the school. So it was very prestigious from the beginning. Um, and they also, at the same time, for all the local uh, girls, set up a domestic school called St. Moore's. It's still here on the estate. It's the old Gamekeeper Lodge. And this is where you would learn uh, skills such as sewing, cooking, and housekeeping, that sort of thing. But the school ran very well. There was enormous challenges, as I said. But to go to school... In, in, taught by Benedictine nuns who had a great penchant for education, as we know, for centuries of experience, but also their way was of being rather liberal, not being harsh on the students. They also made lifelong friendships 
with many of them. So generations of young women got to go to school in a castle surrounded by natural beauty and had a real sense of almost like a that their childhood was being extended. It was so pleasurable to be here in a great learning environment. And they got to, of course, later on when the boarding students arrived here from other places around the world, not just from Dublin and Cork and such, that you would actually go to school with people with vastly different experiences and certainly, yes, different incomes uh, levels in terms of you, you coming from a rich home, perhaps if you were coming from Europe or from Japan, but also intermingling with locals, the daughters of locals who were coming here for free, mostly. And uh, certainly, so shared experience, very important. But the whole philosophy of the Benedictines was about uh, reaching the whole person, training the girl physically, mentally, preparing her for hopefully third level education and enjoying this uh, fantastic place. The beginnings were difficult, but Scholastica Murphy, uh, who was uh, enormously influential out here, was very adept at establishing this great um, center of education. And you mentioned there students from Japan and from all around the world, India as well, the United States, that Mexico, that it really did, uh, there really was an international gathering of of, of students at Conmore. Absolutely. And some of them uh, were certainly not used to the harshness of the weather out here in the winter months. The wind blows very strongly. The rain is endless. It's gloomy. And yet uh, having that sense of togetherness that they would be in the dorms. They'd have, of course, the ability to, you know, correspond with their parents, maybe on telephone calls. But of course, they had a shared experience of all the natural beauty out here. And at the same time, they had their assignments and they were learning wonderfully well. And so, yes, that that just added to the cosmopolitan nature of the school. It was well-renowned, yes, in County Galway, but overseas, it had a name. And certainly this was drawing students here. The peak enrollment was in the 1980s. I think they had 210 young women here and about uh, oh, 50 or more of them would have been from at least from other parts of Ireland, but certainly a lot of them are from overseas as well. Do you have any famous alumni? Uh, I know Angelica Houston, for example, uh, was educated at Kyle Moore. Uh, uh, are, there, are there names that we would recognize from Ireland and around the world? Yes, indeed. So I, I just had compiled that for my talk in that uh, there were people here who of renown, and some of them today are very successful. So uh, this includes Mary Ferretti is a high court judge in Ireland, and she's also very uh, much involved with alumni events to this day. And then you have Anna Mannion is a film producer, and Lydia Little is author of the K-Girls uh, novel series for young adults. We've had at least one Miss Ireland. Amir Hollihan Doyle uh, was Miss Ireland in 1999. She was also a contestant for Miss World later that year. We've had the Indian princesses, the nieces of the Maharaja Ranjinsini, who owned Balnehinch Castle in the 1930s. They attended here. They were very wealthy. They got to wear their own uniforms, their own saris and veils. They did not have to wear the school uniform, and they had a very strict vegetarian diet. They were Hindus. So... Um, People like that. We have local uh, women. Liz and Yvonne Kane are excellent uh, fiddle players. Uh, so they are, they are certainly uh, uh, very engaged with uh, alumni events as well. And then the Irish Consul General to Australia. Her name is Rosie Kane. She's also a past pupil of the school. So yes, there's absolutely uh, people from the world of arts and entertainment, but also sporting people. Mairead Coyne. Uh, played rugby for Ireland at the World Cup in 2017. Uh, so, and also won, won some titles uh, in the GAA for Galway, uh, some Connacht titles. So, yes, a whole variety of very successful people who after their time at Commore went on and achieved great things. And you mentioned the Lydia Little series there, K-Girls, and uh, some wonderful adventures there with uh, ghosts and exploring the Kylemore Abbey past and uh, the buildings and so on. And of course, that's how the students described themselves and how they were known. They were known as K-Girls. Yes, that was an interesting moniker. Um, and they uh, certainly that just shows that they bonded together. They had sort of almost like this tribal thing of we are the K-Girls. We're together learning, uh, growing, and enjoying ourselves thoroughly. So it definitely is a, uh, a source of pride to be a K-girl. So, Garrett, if the school was so prestigious and getting students from all around the world, why then did it close in 2010? Were the costs just too great for running it? 
the costs certainly were always a factor. Uh, it is a very old building. Consider most of, most of the classes took place in the Abbey building itself. Um, other parts of the estate, besides the domestic school, they had the chem lab. Chemistry lab is nearby. Uh, but the focus of the of the most of the matriculation was in the Abbey building itself. This is difficult in a building of this size, 40,000 square feet, and it's, as I say, 150 years old. We are, as you know, Patrick, in one of the rainiest parts of Europe, especially in the west of Ireland. And this area generally gets about three meters of rain annually, which means lots of leaky roofs and black mold growing in places and other structural things. But also the nuns had to contend with that. But the cost of running the school, not to mention, though, the Benedictines were, like a lot of religious orders around Ireland and other parts of the world, losing vocations. And so uh, they were retiring from teaching over time, and especially it hit harder in the early 2000s because of the, uh, the population of the nuns were aging a little bit. They were retiring. That meant they had to hire more lay people to do the instruction. That got to be prohibitively expensive. That's why they eventually made the decision very reluctantly, I might add, in 2005, that they would have to close the school. And when they made that announcement, it was shocking to the girls still in the school, uh, many of whom knew, uh, of course, they would be able to extend their stay until 2010 when they graduated, but also the faculty. And so that was very much a, uh, a, a harsh dose of reality. But again, the nuns felt they had no choice, just given the nature of what was going on in their order and also the building itself. And your talk is taking place on Tuesday morning at 11am. Um, Ethna, can I talk to you about the nuns? Because I think there are 14 there at the moment. Uh, at, at, I think I think when they arrived first, I think there was 40. At one point it dropped to nine. Uh, but it's interesting that you still find nuns, uh, Benedictine nuns from around the world coming to Calmore. Yeah, I think that's probably going to be the future for the community in that there are Benedictine orders and communities all around the world. And they've always had tradition of, um, you know, exchange between the communities and partnership between different communities and traveling and sharing skills. And um, what the nuns from here would share with a lot of communities abroad would be their entrepreneurship and their history of innovation and education. And by sharing that with other communities in the developing world, especially, um, they really help support other communities. So they have always have a lot of visiting sisters coming from other communities. And at the moment, as you said, there's 14 members in the Benedictine community here. And they're very active and they've always had that kind of um, kernel of entrepreneurship and ingenuity and always finding a way forward. And um, so they're always very forward looking and they're in the process also here of building a new monastery, which they're going to be moving into next year. And with that, then they hope to be able to bring more guests, more visitors from other communities, do more exchanges with, with other communities and carry on in the way they always have done in the past, which has always been to kind of move with the times and to kind of evolve with the changing world around them. And they see themselves as offering kind of a place of refuge to people and kind of, you know, a still a still place in the world. And can you tell us how you bring the past to life? Because I was intrigued to see that there are some interesting innovations being used. There's a video, I think, from the current Duke of Manchester. I think you've got the robes of the, the Duke of Manchester who owned Kylemore uh, back in the, the early 20th century, that it's an interesting way of making the past come alive for people. Yes, well, the exhibition about the Henrys is, is very good. I think that we have talking portraits, for example, and there's lots of the exhibition is um, interactive. And recently we received the coronet belonging to the Dukes of Manchester and also some ceremonial robes. And we believe that the coronet was worn at the coronation of uh, Edward VII in 1901 and also George V in 1911. And in 1911, it would have been worn by the ninth Duke of Manchester, which is our Duke, as we call him. And so you can see that in a glass case. It's very impressive. We will have the robes quite soon in a, in a presentation case as well in the main hall. So that is something visual that you can see. Um, we have photos of the Duke and Duchess of Manchester dressed to go to the um, coronation of George V, and they look quite impressive. But it's really interesting to see the actual coronet there in, in front of you. 
So we're adding to the exhibitions all the time. And uh, in the gardens, we're going to have um, another interactive exhibition in place quite soon as well. Um, we're going to have an app uh, working with the QR codes as well in different languages. So we're always trying to bring that information into digestible format for the visitors, I suppose. And Gareth, what do you think uh, visitors are most interested in when they visit Kylemore? Is it the history of the school and the story of the nuns? Is it the entrepreneurship and adventures of the 19th century with Mitchell Henry? Is it, uh, is it the beautiful location and the scenery? Like what part draws people in? Well, Patrick, I would say it sort of depends on the visitor, uh, maybe according to demographic, maybe according to their origin. Many visitors from France love Kyle Moore. They love Connemara in general, so they love the natural beauty. Uh, but we do have displays throughout the building in different languages as well, especially we're having audio guides developed for people from other countries. So it, it really does depend on your perspective. If you are interested in religious tourism, and certainly that is a, a big demographic around the world, especially in Ireland, there's the whole history of the nuns. If you're interested in 19th century history, especially its impact out here in the west of Ireland, very difficult times, of course, during, depending on the decade in the 19th century, that will hold your interest. If you're interested in royal history in terms of Ireland's place, haltingly, in the British Empire, uh, the Duke and Duchess sort of embody that uh, establishment uh, party of the, you know, the nobility of, of Britain being here. Uh, so then, of course, if you're interested in education, the history of the school is well told. And so uh, it depends on your perspective, but there's so many facets out here, out here as we've said. Uh, so, but also the other thing we have on the estate, if you, if you have a, a keen um, ability to enjoy the natural setting and like the uh, fact is that we have this fantastic estate of 1,000 acres of woodlands and supreme lakes and rivers everywhere, that also will draw you in in terms of you want to be outdoors. And we have lots of information on our uh, trees and our plants. And the garden, of course, is such a draw. If you are, We have so many people who are into horticulture. We have one of the most impressive gardens in all the British Isles and certainly in the second most visited garden in the country behind Powers Court Estate. So there's so much to see here, not just beyond the, beyond the, beyond the history. Yes, we have of all of that, but in terms of the estate in general, the natural setting is uh, remarkable and draws visitors in for that reason. Okay, well tonight we are talking history and we're talking about the history of Kylemore Abbey and we're going to take a quick break now when we come back we'll be taking the history of Kylemore Abbey up to the present day and talking about the future so stay with us here on News Talk. Well, welcome back we're talking history and we're talking about the history of Kylemore Abbey my panel of experts Ethno Halloran Kylemore Abbey's Experience Manager and Burke History Guide at Kylemore Abbey and Gareth Nuckton Experience Supervisor at Kylemore Abbey and there's some wonderful events taking place at Kylemore this week Week and indeed all around the country as part of Heritage Week. Just go to the website heritageweek.ie. Now, Ethna, can you talk to me about the, the accreditation uh, that Kylemore has? Because I think you're very interested in making sure that Kylemore develops as a museum, as an accredited museum. And so uh, you're involved with the MSPI, the Museum yeah. Standards Programme for Ireland. We are, and we're not we're not accredited yet. We're quite a long way off because it's quite a long program. So we're part of a program called the Museum Standard Program for Ireland. And that's really where you aspire to do everything from education programs to um, caring for your collection, caring for your building, um, encouraging research, all those kind of areas. So since we opened our new exhibition in the Abbey in 2019, we've aspired in our own way to try and do everything to the best level that we could. And so then we decided to go one step further and apply for to see if we would be eligible to become a museum. So we're in that process at the moment. We're applying for interim, interim accreditation this autumn. So it's quite a big process. It's really interesting. And all our history guides, Garrett and Anne included, and the rest of our team, everybody is invested in it. So it's down to everything, to looking after, say, the textiles and the floors that you walk on. But a lot of it is about storytelling as well and sharing your story and heritage with the local community. And that's another area that we're really interested in because without in all these big houses, there's no big houses, there's no stories without the locals who all would have been the people who made it happen. So they would have been the people out working in the gardens, people providing the food for the houses, the sheep herds, the, you know, everyone 
who locally who made these places happen. So we're also really interested in those stories. And that's a kind of a big area we've been working on in the last few years. And we want to continue to research because it's easy in a way to research people like the Duke or Mitchell Henry um, because people like that, their archives were kept to an extent and you can research them. It's harder to find actually local stories because poor people and local people, nobody was um, keeping records of their stories. So we're trying to do our bit in retelling stories and giving recognition to um, the input of local people in places like Kylemore. And we've been really fortunate in the last few years with making really good links locally and just even some of the really amazing items that have been given to us or given on loan to us from local families that um, helped tell that story. And it all kind of enriches the experience here at Kylemore. And from our own point of view, as well as history guides, it keeps it alive for us as well, because like you have to keep the story alive and evolving and changing and, and enriching it all the time. And it means as well that when people come to visit Kylemore, even though they have been visiting for years and years, there's always something different that we have uncovered or some new angle or some new story that has come to light. So that's kind of a lot of what we're about at the moment is keeping it alive, keeping it fresh and bringing in the local element. And interested in climate as well and, and biodiversity. Yeah. And of course, you know, when you're one of the biggest tourism places in the country, you have a big responsibility towards you know, to do it sustainably because like we're quite aware that, you know, um, having thousands of tourists come onto your state, it takes a toll on the buildings. It takes a toll in a way on the surroundings. So we do have a very active biodiversity program. We have a woodlands expert on the site here, um, Ines Streifkirk. And so we take that responsibility really seriously. There's a huge program here of restoration of the woodlands. Um, Mitchell Henry was many things. He had so many different areas that you could focus on with Mitchell Henry, but one of them as well, he was very typical of a wealthy Victorian in his obsession with plant collecting and tree collecting. And he brought thousands of trees here, hundreds of thousands of trees here and specimens from all over the world. So we have, we're the caretakers of that woodlands now, which is nearly destroyed by rhododendrons. So we have a huge program of restoration of the woodlands here and, um, and take our kind of responsibility with sustainability and, you know, the, the heritage really that that's another type of heritage as well living heritage of nature and the woodlands and um, we take that really seriously as well very good and there's also a fascinating exhibition taking place in the dining hall could you tell us about that yes we set the dining room to the way it was more or less in the 19th century and we've had a set of plates made up and in the middle of the plates we've got the names of famous people that came through there at the time of Mitchell Henry and so you'll see there are lots of illustrious people like John Spencer, who was an ancestor to Princess Diana. There's Prince Arthur, who was seventh child of Queen Victoria. So you see they were moving in very elite circles. But there's also a plate for Lady Augustus Gregory. As you know, she founded our National Theatre along with W.B. Yeats. And there's also a plate for Lady Jane Wilde, who was the mother, of course, of Oscar Wilde. Um, because Lady Jane Wilde and Sir William Wilde, they had a holiday home in the area, so they were very frequent visitors to the house. Uh, so these people, the Wildes and Lady Augustus Gregory and Yeats, they were people, as you know, who spearheaded the Celtic revival at the end of the 19th century. So I like to think that visitors to the house had an influence on Mitchell Henry, and he also had an influence on them. And there's also a plate there for um, Arthur Balfour. He was a politician friend of Mitchell Henry, and he came in 1890. He was touring the people of Connemara, trying to find out what the problems were, because, as you know, there was a land war going on at that time, a lot of agrarian um, agitation. And Balfour was touring the people of Connemara, and he was accompanied by Wyndham, who was another politician friend of Mitchell Henry. They would have spoken to Mitchell Henry about what the issues were in the area because he was on the ground. And when these two men became prime ministers in England, Balfour and Wyndham, they passed land acts, which meant that the bulk of the land in Ireland was handed back to the Irish people. For example, 1903, 95% of the land was owned by landlords, the ascendancy, 
and thanks to these land acts passed by Balfour and Wyndham, who were visitors to the house, um, by 1914, 75% of the land had been handed back or bought, I suppose, by the indigenous Irish people who had been um, tenants for centuries. So I like to think that Carmel was actually a powerhouse of reform. <laughs> Very good. And of course, there's also a new monastery being built. Garrett, can you tell us about that and what difference that will make? A huge difference, Patrick, when you consider that the nuns, as we've discussed earlier on the program, have been inhabiting a building which is 150 years old, never designed as an abbey in the first place. So the other thing we see when we're in Calmore Abbey uh, is that it is nothing but staircases. Very difficult to move around, especially for members of the community. The other thing, in a building of that size, 40,000 square feet, very difficult to keep heated in the winter time. And so the nuns, for a long while, have been... Uh, interested in a brand new monastery, which they're building right now here on the estate. And we have to thank Kerry Construction of Ireland for doing this. Construction began in 2019. It halted. It's underway again. We hope to have the new monastery done here on the estate in April of 2024, not many months away now. Currently, the nuns are scattered all over the estate. They have their abbey here in the center part of the valley, but a mile away, they reside in the evening hours at Adder Google Farm. It's a restored Victorian farmhouse dating from the time of Mitchell Henry. That will all change. When they get the new monastery built, they'll have a retreat center uh, in the front and behind will be the brand new residence. Centrally heated, comfortable surroundings, very modern building with lots of lifts and elevators to move around easily, conference centers. And of course, the retreat center, very important because the Benedictines since the sixth century have had a philosophy, according to the rule of St. Benedict, of hospitality, enshrined in the Latin word pax, meaning peace, a peaceful welcome from time to time for visitors into their areas, enjoying the hospitality of the nuns. And so when that is done, it will be the first purpose-built uh, Benedictine Abbey for women in this country for more than 400 years, something to look forward to. For sure, the retreats will enhance the life of, as I mentioned earlier, religious tourism, if you will, the ability to come and see what the nuns are all about and see that they are doing great work out here. And the new building will be absolutely incredible. It will have a nice, fine view of the lake from a different angle, yes. But here in the valley, you'll see the mountains on all sides. And it will be a great benefit to the region, especially here on the estate, to have a retreat centre of that calibre. And Ethna, we've mentioned some of the talks and two wonderful ones being delivered by Anne and Gareth this week. But there are other events taking place at Kylemore Abbey, including one on the trees of Kylemore on the 15th, yeah. uh, one on the Irish harp. There is a room by room audio tour as well. So that there's lots taking place. There's lots taking place. Uh, just check out our website or any of the social media and you'll find them all. Um, the trees of Kylemore should be a really lovely one. It's at um, two o'clock next Tuesday and it's with the lady called Aoife Imbleton and she actually did her masters on the trees um, of Calmore because we talked about biodiversity a little while ago we have an ongoing partnership with NUIG where their master's students come and they do their research portion of their master's here on site in Calmore so that's bringing a really it's fantastic for us because we benefit from the research we're learning a lot about the habitats we're learning a lot about how to plan going forward to um, improve biodiversity on the estate. And there's going to be a lovely one on Friday as well, which is the Irish harp. The Irish harp is actually a, a UNESCO World Heritage instrument. And we have a fantastic lady called Lynn Searsha, who would be who plays the Irish harp for us, but also she gives a lovely interpretation of the importance of the Irish harp in Irish history. And so that's a really nice little event as well. And the audio tour is basically a room by room tour of the Abbey. You can virtually walk through the rooms of the Abbey um, by listening to this audio tour. So hopefully a little bit of something for everyone. And can you tell me about one of the events uh, taking place this week during Heritage Week? Because uh, you're going to be presenting a living heritage of food and hospitality, sharing a selection of the recipes passed on over the generations by the Benedictine nuns. Yeah, so that's one of the online events that we're doing because we have a combination of on-site and online events. And that's kind of one of the features of Heritage Week, National Week, is that they encourage people to get involved in all kinds of, in whatever way they can. So we like to share recipes are so popular from Kylemore because there's a huge food heritage 
um, here. And even when, when Mitchell Henry was here, food and dining was always really important in Kylemore. And actually dining and uh, entertaining people was used to influence even politicians and decision making, those kind of things. But the recipes that we're going to share, um, we're going to start with recipes dating from a beautiful cookbook, handwritten cookbook and from from our archives, from a Dame Mary Teresa Howard. Now, she was a niece of Sir John Redmond, and she was one of the nuns that came to Kylemore in 1920 um, after the nuns' abbey was bombed in Ypres. So she came from Belgium with the nuns. So, And we have a beautiful little handwritten um, cookbook belonged to her from the archives. So we're going to feature about four of her recipes. Um, I think um, there's one here called It's an Irish Moss Jelly. And that's from the Dame Mary Howard um, cookbook. And that's a corrigan, uh, corrigan jelly recipe. And just that personally, I find just really intriguing because they're using the local ingredients. And corrigan jelly is um, like it's used all over the world now. But corrigan would have been uh, a real um, ingredient that is corrigan moss grows on the rocks on the shoreline around here. And I think that was just very interesting to see her in her little cookbook incorporating local ingredients and things from the the local areas so that's a nice little one that we're going to be sharing and corrigan jelly as well you know traditionally was always used for coughs and things like that but it's actually a beautiful delicately flavored jelly as well so that's one of the recipes that I find just a bit intriguing and one of the ones that we're going to share. So lots to find and explore at Kylemore Abbey. And I think it is even, you know, the history, of course, and we're a history show. The history, of course, makes it all worthwhile. But I think the beautiful location makes it worthwhile in its own right. It does. And even for us, like we're a very busy location, but... um even on the busiest day here, you can't help but still, like, we still love it, to be honest with you. It's so beautiful. And we have, I think, one of the most stunning views um, of the whole estate is we have a beautiful front door of the castle. It's actually a door that Mitchell Henry salvaged from a church on Thomas Street um, that he's seen being demolished in the early 1800s. And, and that door, when that's open, and it's a huge archway. And when you look out through that door, it's looks out directly onto the lake and onto the mountain and it's like the wallpaper of what we see are the mountains and the lakes and it does it does your soul good and to be around the beauty and we don't really tire of it um i don't know what Anne and garrett would say but despite the rain and any little chance for the sun to come out and um the, the beauty is really what brings it all together and the beauty is really what brought mitchell henry here in the first place and what started the whole story well, I think that's a lovely note on which to end our discussion tonight. My thanks to Ethan O'Halloran, Experience Manager at Conmore Abbey and Burke History Guide at Conmore Abbey and Garrett Nuckton, who's Experience Supervisor at Conmore Abbey. Well, that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to my producer, Marisa Sullivan and to Peter Malloy on sound. We've got more debate and discussion next week, so hope you can join us then. We've been Talking History. Good night.